You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Mystery of Death. Fifteen Lectures, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLange. This is Lecture 9, given in Prague on the 13th of May, 1915, entitled Man's Relationship to the Kingdoms of Nature and to the Hierarchies, Time Spirits and Folk Spirits, The Urging Voices of the Dead. It is a difficult time in which we are living, a time of truly courageous deeds and high sacrifices on the one hand, a time of hard and difficult trials for human souls on the other. At the end of our considerations today, it will therefore be my task to arouse some feelings evoked by our destiny-laden time, for since we are able to be together at such a time, it is our wish to conclude by allowing the feelings engendered at such a time to find full expression. But we should like to begin with something that can shed light upon much that must speak in a meaningful way to our souls in our time. Since we have begun to study the world in a spiritual scientific way, we have called the four members of our human nature the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body, and the ego. And we know that the ego, or rather that aspect of human nature that we call I, capital, through which we give expression to the ego, is the youngest but also for us the most significant member of the human organism. For if, through the succession of Saturn, Sun, and Moon time, man were to consist only of a physical body, etheric body, and astral body, he would not be man. Man is the being he is through the fact that during the earthly age he has received his ego through the spirits of the higher hierarchies, and that during the earthly age he now further develops this ego in the course of successive incarnations through various human communities, through various peoples and periods of time, until the earth has reached the aim of its evolution, and until by having fully developed his ego man has also achieved his earthly purpose. But we also know that there are higher spiritual beings. We use the word higher to refer to them. Who, as it were, stand above man? We speak of the hierarchy of the angels, angeloi, of the hierarchy of the archangels, archangeloi, of the archai, or time spirits, and so on in an upward ascent. We refer to them by means of these names, and we could equally well use other names, but the names are as introduced in the West. We wish now to call to mind how we may conceive of these spiritual beings of the higher hierarchies in relation to man and his place here on the earth. We shall begin from what man has around him here on earth. We know that This is the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, and the animal kingdom. And from everything that he can observe of his situation, man must come to regard the human kingdom itself as the highest of these kingdoms. 
above these kingdoms, as it were, as a continuation upward, appear the realm of the Angeloi, the Archangeloi, the Archai, and so forth. We may simply visualize that these realms are not concluded with that of the human kingdom, but also extend further upward, only that the higher realms cannot be seen with the outward senses. It might in itself appear obvious that when we ascend from the mineral, plant, and animal kingdoms to the human kingdom, invisibility begins directly as we go above the human kingdom. But it will be obvious only for as long as one does not consider that animals, as is quite clear to someone who is able to put himself wholly into the way that animals perceive the world, do not see human beings as one human being sees other human beings. If animals could speak, they would only speak of mineral, plant, and animal kingdoms as being visible. They would regard themselves as the highest visible realm. That animals see human beings as one human being sees another is merely a prejudice. For animals, we human beings are actually of a supersensible, ghostly existence. And if animals only had such perceptions as we have, they would not see human beings, but human beings would be as invisible to them as the realm of the angels is to us. Only because they have a certain dreamlike clairvoyance do animals see man as a specter, as a supersensible being. We cannot as such have any direct conception of the image that an animal forms of a human being. On the other hand, animals also see something in a downward perspective, or, to be more precise, perceive something in a downward direction which man no longer perceives in this sense. That is to say, animals do not merely perceive the mineral world in the way that human beings do, but they, and especially the lower animals, perceive something altogether different. When an animal, such as a snail, crawls over the ground, it perceives the whole distinctive quality of the soil. It would constantly disturb a person if, as he walks over the floor of the earth, he were to perceive it as does a snail or a tortoise. With the higher animals that have warm blood, it is somewhat different, but especially the lower animals really do perceive the whole distinctive quality of the ground on which they are crawling. They perceive the special character of the air. They perceive everything that is around them totally differently from a human being. The animal knows whether the ground over which it is moving is peaty or sandy soil, for it inwardly perceives its essential quality. Indeed, it is rather as though we were hearing the things around us. The whole of the mineral world is pervaded by a delicate quivering of forces that a human being does not perceive. The animal perceives this delicate quivering in such a way that it experiences the one as congenial and the other not. When, for example, an animal moves from one kind of soil to another, it is not that the animal sees it as does a human being, but it does so because something is painful to it, because the delicate movements reverberate within it, because it feels a kind of affinity there. This is a kind of instinctive hearing, like a hearing of what is going on in the soil. Or it is like a process of smelling. So that we can say, the animal perceives an elemental realm and from man onward acknowledges a higher hierarchy. We are therefore placed amidst a world 
that we know as the outer world of the senses, with its outwardly perceived realms or kingdoms, and the world of the higher hierarchies. Now we also know that a being of the higher hierarchies, for example an angel, has passed through a human stage. This was while the earth was passing through the period of old moon. At this time man was not yet man, for he had no ego. He was only at the preparatory stage of humanity and had the astral body as the highest member of his being. The beings who belonged to the hierarchy of the Angeloi had passed through their human stage during the time of Old Moon. And the spirits to whom we turn as the guardian spirits of individual human beings are these beings from the hierarchy of the Angeloi, to each of whom a human being is assigned. The, quote, spirits of your souls, close quote, are those who are in the hierarchy directly above man, whose wings, to put it in symbolic terms, work protectively over human beings and over the single human individual. Then we come to the hierarchy of the Archangeloi. They were also once human beings. During the period of Old Sun, the beings whom we today call Archangeloi were at the human stage. They did not, of course, take the shape that human beings have now. They were formed completely differently. But they were at that time at their human stage. We should not imagine that during the time of Old Sun, the Archangeloi looked like modern human beings. But as regards their development, they were at their human stage. Similarly, the spirits of personality or time spirits were at their human stage during the period of Old Saturn. Now let us single out these spirits to whom we refer as the Archangeloi. Thus we have these spirits who passed through their human stage during the period of Old Sun and rose to the stage of angels during the time of Old Moon and have in our time ascended to the stage of Archangeloi. We first want to place before our souls these spiritual beings who stand two stages higher than us. We shall return to them later. Then we have the spiritual beings who were human beings during the period of old Saturn and are today spirits of time, who stand three stages above us. Again, we want to visualize them. And now we shall consider our relationship specifically to these two kinds of spirits. When we as human beings pass through an incarnation, we may therefore acknowledge that in our earthly bodies today we are living in an incarnation, There stand above us spirits whom we regard as belonging to the hierarchy of the angels, then spirits belonging to the hierarchy of the archangeloi, and those belonging to the hierarchy of the archai, the time spirits or spirits of personality. They too are undergoing a development of their own. Let us consider specifically the archai, the spirits of personality or time spirits. Thus we pass through our incarnation, We then go through the gate of death, enter after death into a spiritual world, undergo a purely spiritual development between death and a new birth, and then return to an earthly existence through a new birth. Now we may ask, on what does it depend whether after a certain number of years we again come down to the earth? This question has often been raised in public lectures. An answer can be given from a certain point of view, but in the intimate context of our branches, we can give an answer that points more to the reality of the situation. 
while we are living here in the physical body, the time spirit has a quite particular level of development. It does something that is connected with the development of human beings on earth, and it undergoes a development of its own. When this time spirit has in the course of its evolution arrived at the point where we have all let what it is undergoing and has undergone flow into us, we are, as it were, ready to come down to an earthly incarnation. And when for its part it has proceeded a stage further, and we have in the course of our journey through the spiritual worlds developed to a certain stage, we can again enter into an earthly phase of development. We look first from the standpoint of our own evolution. We then look at how, in a very long period of time, the time spirit undergoes its development. If on this basis we view the evolution of earthly humanity by going back to the founding of ancient Rome, 800 years before the mystery of Golgotha, thus to the time when Rome was founded, we find that a certain time spirit began its development. Previously, another time spirit had been guiding and directing the destiny of the earth. And this time spirit, who had, at that time, taken over the guidance of the earth in its spiritual evolution, was active right until the 16th century. Since that time, thus since the 16th century, there has been another time spirit. We are therefore concerned with two time spirits. A human individual who was, for example, incarnated in the 3rd century before the mystery of Golgotha, underwent what this time spirit was bringing about for the earth. If this person died in the 3rd century, or even in the 2nd century, the time spirit cannot, initially, give him anything for the time after his death. What it has been able to give him, it has already given him. The time spirit must now, for its part, pass through a number of years before it is able to give the person something new. Then this human individual, who has been in a spiritual world between death and a new birth, again comes down to the earth when the time spirit can give him something new. Now things are so arranged that the individual human being actually, on average, comes several times, for the time spirit is not in a position always to give everything that he could give because of the imperfection of human beings. This means that a human individual comes several times in the period in which a time spirit is undergoing development. But the whole process depends on the fact that the time spirits rule over the successive incarnations of human beings. For their part, however, the time spirits rule over this whole course of human destiny by virtue of their having subordinates, and these are the archangels. Such archangels and their subordinate positions have much shorter periods of rulership than the time spirits. Whereas the time spirits hold sway for as long as I have previously indicated, so that we can assume the sovereignty of one time spirit from the founding of Rome until the 16th century, the spirits whom we regard as the hierarchy of the archangels have a period of rulership lasting approximately only between three and four centuries. They therefore alternate in such a way that six or seven come one after the other during the sovereignty of one time spirit.
so that around the time when the mystery of Golgotha takes place, we have first the rulership over spiritual evolution of that archangel, whom we associate with the name of Ariphiel. Then comes the rulership of Anael. Then the rulership of Zachariel, Raphael, Samael, Gabriel, and now, since the year 1879, we have the sovereignty of that archangel whom we call Micaiah. Thus, when we contemplate the spiritual worlds, we have, as it were, the higher succession of the rulerships of archangels. Because man is unable to receive everything that the time spirit would give him, he does not take it directly from the hand of the time spirit, but from the hand of the archangel, of the less high power. We may therefore state our immediate personal guardians belong to the hierarchy of the Angeloi. Above them stand those who govern human beings more in connection with other human beings, and above them stand the archai, or spirits of personality, or time spirits. When I speak in this way, I am referring to those beings who have pursued their development in a proper way, but not all spirits follow a rightful course of development. There are spiritual beings who were already archai during old Saturn, but who remain behind at the archai stage, thus at the stage where they were at that time. Thus now, during the earth evolution, they have not emerged from their Saturn stage. They have not risen to the stage of rightful development. They have retained their human character. They are on the one hand supersensible Saturn beings, but are at the human stage. Similarly, there are beings from the hierarchy of the Archangeloi who remained at the human stage on the sun and now exist in the supersensible world as human beings. We refer to these beings collectively as Luciferic beings, who are therefore retarded, or as Aramonic beings. We cannot enter today into the difference between Luciferic and Aramonic beings. They are all retarded spirits. Now we must answer the question, how does a human being, now in earthly incarnation, receive the influence of the spirits who have rightfully advanced in their development, the time spirits, or archai, and the archangeloi, who are their servants? These beings are of a supersensible nature. A person cannot relate to them as to the sense-perceptible world. He therefore does not, as a rule, know, if he relies wholly upon the world of the senses, that he is engaged in a development guided from above by the archai and the archangeloi. He is unaware of this. But these supersensible beings are involved with everything that pertains to his being. Now, those spiritual beings whom we call folk spirits, who therefore guide whole peoples or nations, also belong to the rank of the archangeloi, the archangels. And insofar as we owe what we are to the people to which we belong, we must regard what the national character endows us with as a gift of the respective being from the hierarchy of the archangeloi. It is the inspiration of the archangeloi that we receive through being placed in a particular people. Now we need only to consider what it means for a human individual that he belongs to a particular people. With nationality, 
there come spiritual qualities and also customs. A quite particular configuration of nature flows into a human individual. One can barely conceive of the difference it has made to the way one is constituted in an incarnation through the gift of the folk spirit, thus through the gift of an archangelic being. Except that we have our place within a national entity, and therefore through the inspiration of an archangelic being, receive certain configurations of our whole existence. We stand within the evolution of the whole of humanity, and there we are beholden to the intuitions to which the time spirit from the hierarchy of the archai leads us. You must also bear in mind that in our present spiritual and intellectual culture we receive something that goes beyond all national differences. This is something that we have through the fact that we are living in the period straddling the 19th and 20th centuries and would not have had if we had been living during the age of ancient Rome or Greece. We owe this to the time spirit. Moreover, one can make a clear distinction between a gift of the time spirit and a gift of the folk spirit. But if it were only a matter of a regular development of man, a regular development of the angelos, the archangelos, and the time spirit, we would, in every individual case, always receive the gift from our time spirit and from our respective folk spirit, and would develop by receiving this gift. Human beings on the earth would develop alongside one another. All those belonging to the various peoples over the earth would receive the gift of the folk spirits on the earth, rather as if five pictures wholly distinct from one another were hanging in a room, but the one picture would not have the slightest effect on the others. Individual human beings would in this way receive the gift of their folk spirits alongside one another on the earth. They would not disturb one another if all evolution were to have proceeded as it should. But here, retarded spirits play their part. Among the archangeloi beings who guide human affairs are those who rightly began their evolution on the sun and have become rightly evolved archangeloi right up to the earth period. But there are also those who have remained at the sun stage and are essentially only at the level of human beings. These beings are therefore at the same stage as the folk spirits and yet have remained behind them. They only have the qualities of invisible, supersensible human beings, not of archangeloi. These beings are retarded in their nature. In a certain sense, they make the same claims on the world as the archangeloi, but they have not reached the stage of the archangeloi on the earth. Hence, in a certain way, they have to work with the same forces as on the sun. The consequence of this is that the way they take hold of human beings is not as archangeloi, but as human beings, as invisible human beings who enter directly into human nature, who do not guide human beings from above, but invade human nature. And the impulse emanating from these spirits, who therefore act in competition with the folk spirits offering real guidance, is that peoples feud with one another as opposed to living together peacefully on the earth. A human individual 
would not endeavor to identify his personality, his essential humanity, with his folk, but would regard this folk element as something that nourishes him spiritually. Moreover, he would not contentiously stand up for his national character and identify himself personally with it. He would not say, I am this or that nationality, but rather, nationality is a reality. And because I have been born into it, I must derive my spiritual nourishment via this nationality. But while the archangel spurs him to think in this way, the other being intervenes, who is actually on the level of humanity, is essentially a Luciferic spirit and leads him into nationalism. The consequence of this is that the gift that comes down to the person concerned is not one that is archangelic in nature, but that he identifies with the national character as with something of a wholly personal nature, thus leading to this conflict of nationalities on the earth. We must be very clear about what is involved here, because we have placed ourselves under the influence not only of the guiding archangel, but also under that of the archangel who has come to a standstill and has remained behind. We identify with nationality, in the way that we do on earth. The way that we feel about these matters from a spiritual scientific point of view is that we understand ourselves as human beings to be raised above the merely national in order to find access to the universally human. We can then be national in the most eminent sense. Just as one human individual can pursue one form of art and another person something different, and the one can practice his art without needing to be the opponent of the other, there would be no need for the one nationality to be the opponent of the other if there were no archangelic beings retarded in their evolution who caused the personal identification referred to earlier. One must keep this firmly in mind if one wants to speak of what lies at the foundation of human evolution with respect to nationality or other kinds of differentiation. With regard to the time spirit, you will see even more precisely how the luciferic element exerts its influence upon the rightly evolved element if you consider the following. A time spirit exerts an influence through a certain period. Since the 16th century, there has been a new time spirit. This time spirit has its quite particular task. It has the task of adding the whole materialistic capacity and understanding of the world to previous evolutionary impulses. This is why the materialistic conception has made such great advances since the 16th century. We, therefore, do not need to regard materialistic understanding as something of less value than the former kind of understanding, provided that we do not identify with it one-sidedly. What will someone who looks at the matter in this way say? about the rulership of the various time spirits. He will say, Now we are governed by a certain time spirit. Formerly, we were governed by a different time spirit. Human beings had different conceptions, different impulses. And if he were only to be influenced by rightly evolved time spirits, he would say, We must now adapt to this time spirit in that we immerse ourselves more in the laws of the world's evolution 
of materialistic thinking. Then after a while a different time spirit will come who will bring a different quality to human thinking. I have often emphasized that as practitioners of spiritual science we must say, today we promulgate spiritual science with quite particular words and ideas and concepts, but it is not the case that we believe that what we say today applies to the whole future of the earth, but it will change. When 2,000 years will have passed, that which we call spiritual science today will be imparted with different words, just as we speak differently than in the age of Greece. Nothing will remain of the manner of our words. We build not upon the foundation of something outwardly permanent, but we know that one time spirit takes over from the other and that all stand together on equal terms. But someone who is influenced by retarded time spirits from Saturn working within him and who identifies with their influence, may say, Those people at that time were all stupid. This was the kindergarten of humanity. We have today gone far beyond this. We have now discovered truths that apply conclusively to the whole of the future. One becomes more modest and humble in the realm of spiritual science. Anyone who identifies with the time spirit will say, Copernicus has now finally discovered the truth. Formerly something different was believed. People will henceforth forever say that the earth and the planets move in an ellipse around the sun. The sun stands in the middle. Spiritual science today knows that this is a one-sided teaching. It is a very good way for a materialistic age to envisage the world, but in absolute terms it is wrong. It is not true that the sun is at the focal point of an ellipse and that the earth moves around it. In truth, this is all a materialistically calculated, illusory movement. The truth is that the sun is itself moving and the earth and the other planets follow it in a screw-like movement. And through the rising of certain positions in this screw-like movement, the earth comes to be here or there at any one time. Through this arises the illusion of an ellipse. The line is actually a different one. A time will come when scientists will recognize this. One becomes more modest when one knows the truths expressed in a particular form are valid only for certain times. And as true practitioners of spiritual science, we will never assert that from now on all people in all future times will say, Man consists of a physical body, etheric body, astral body, and ego. For the future, we'll have a very different way of expressing it. The point is that everything is in a process of development, that the ideas of yesterday are as justified as the ideas of today, that we do not only let ourselves be governed by a time spirit that leads us to believe that everything in former times was vain illusion and deception, and that we have progressed so wonderfully beyond it. With respect to the time spirit, you see that people are possessed by a luciferic spirit when they say, how wonderful our progress has been since then, how imperfect everything was that people used to think and say about the world. Whereas what we have now discovered will last forever. 
What has been discovered since the 16th century will continue to exist as eternal truths. Thus what one discerns in any particular folk spirit is actually a complicated being. It is the rightly evolved folk spirit who hovers over us and whom we, if we followed it alone, would follow in such a way that we accept its gifts because we have been placed in its sphere. But it is constantly hampered in its activity by its luciferic companion who enters into us, causing us to identify as an individual human being with the customs and traditions of our nationality. However, individual human beings accomplish this in a variety of ways, and it is of immense importance that it is seen that in the middle of Europe a national character must develop that stands differently in relation to the being of its folk spirit than that which lies at the periphery of Europe. This insight is one that we must learn to acquire. It is to the highest degree significant what goes on beneath the surface of human consciousness and which is actually dependent upon the spiritual beings of the higher hierarchies. Someone who thinks in a materialistic way will interpret it as sheer fantasy when one says that from spiritual beings there emanate such impulses that I have just specified, one of which is that in Central Europe, without people being aware of it, popular consciousness has been thrust toward such a way of experiencing the divinity, or because Christ is an active presence in Central Europe, the Christ being, that a person from Central Europe learns to experience Christ in such a way that he speaks to the innermost depths of the soul. This has not been the case in any territory as it has in Central Europe. For example, in the Roman period of the Christian era, the Christ was indeed understood as a being who has come to the earth, who has been working on behalf of human beings. To be sure, those who were more advanced in their ideas, and to some extent those who had already been thinking, as those of us who know of spiritual science think today, had a sense of the way that Paul was thinking when he wrote, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote. But there is still a difference between this and an experience such as we find in Meister Eckhart, in Tauler, in Angelus Silesius, and other similar minds. How did they relate to the mystery of Golgotha? We need only to ask Angelus Silesius, and he will answer with the beautiful lines, quote, If Christ a thousand times in Bethlehem is born, and not in you, you will yet be eternally forlorn. Close quote. It is a matter of experiencing the mystery of Golgotha within one's own soul. These individuals from Central Europe sought inwardly to experience something that is an inner picture and inner expression of the mystery of Golgotha. It is therefore so wonderful when Angelus Silesius speaks about death and says, Everything that fundamentally happens to me happens because God is in me and accomplishes things within me. And when I die, it is not I who dies, but God actually dies in me. Think what a wonderfully intimate idea of immortality lies within the words, God dies in me. For God is, of course, immortal. If God dies in me, death is only apparent. Then one feels how Angelus Silesius has this feeling 
that God only apparently dies within one, for God cannot die. Thus dying is not what it outwardly appears to be. It is only a fact of the living. And because God cannot die, but nevertheless dies within one, one has a sense of the idea of immortality. This inner and highly intimate affinity with God, whether one experiences God as a divinity or in a Christian form, is what has long been prepared in the course of Central European evolution. And the Central European folk spirits have brought it about that this has found an outward symbolic expression, a real symbolic expression. Nowhere other than in Central Europe is, in quotes, ich, I in English, said, when one is referring to one's own ego, one's own being. Through the folk spirit, manifesting itself as the spirit of language, the whole of evolution has been so guided that it has gradually come to give expression to one's own being by means of the word ich. But ich, quote I-ch, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lies within this word. Through the fact that in the word ich, Jesus Christ comes to expression in his initial letters, there is a symbolic expression of what lies in the spiritual nature of Central Europe, of how it is intimately connected with the most inward experience. Every time that one speaks the word Ich, one is giving expression to the initial letters of Jesus Christ. If one would but cast one's spiritual eye, E-Y-E, on such things, which are indeed seen today as purely fanciful, one would have a sense of how unconsciously the spirits of the higher hierarchies are forever working into human evolution and then find something significant in the things that one really takes for granted today. I should like to mention one really significant fact. There is a certain group of European people who are referred to as Germanic peoples. But when in Central Europe one speaks of Germans, one means England, Holland, Norway, Sweden, and also others one extends the concept of Germanness more broadly. I am not seeking to provoke, but simply wish to point out what is given in the language. When English people speak, they do not call themselves Germans. They only call the Germans the Deutschen, Germans. The German der Deutsche calls himself a German, ein Deutscher. And when he speaks of Germans, Germanen. He is embracing a larger group of people. The Englishman applies the name Germans purely to the Germans, die Deutschen, to those who are not the same as he is. This is a hugely significant fact. It is something that is in the deepest sense significant with respect to the way that the folk spirit works on the one side or the other, to how in Central Europe it endeavors to encompass something wider, and the folk spirit of the English people endeavors to extract itself from what encompasses a wider dimension and apply it only to others. Generally speaking, what language teaches us as the outcome of an active popular culture will gradually come to manifest itself in a wonderful way for people. When one speaks in this way about the various European peoples, there is at present little understanding of how I sought to do so several years before this war, and by no means prompted by it, 
in the cycle titled The Mission of the Individual Folk Souls in Connection with Teutonic Mythology. People interpret it as though I was wanting to express value judgments of some kind, but the intention was not to express value judgments, but simply to give a characterization. And we can now characterize especially the West European peoples by bringing precisely and concisely to expression what I indicated in this lecture cycle. We know that the human soul consists of sentient soul, intellectual or mind soul, and consciousness soul, and that the ego works within these three nuances of soul. If we now consider the Italian people together with its folk soul, we find the distinctive quality that the folk soul sends its inspiration into the sentient soul. This is the characteristic element of the Italian national character, that the folk soul works inspirationally into the sentient soul. If something is possessed by the Luciferic folk spirit, this is also true of the folk soul. And now consider that on the one hand the greatness of the Italian people consists in the fact that the sentient soul is inspired. Think of Dante, of all the great Italian artists. But also again the matter of personal identification, as it were the superhuman aspect which is luciferically retarded in all the passionate developmental impulses that appear within the Italian people. This is not to imply a value judgment, but simply to characterize what is present. With the French people we can see everywhere how the intellectual soul or mind soul is inspired by the folk soul, indeed the intellectual or mind soul. With the British people it is the consciousness soul. Now, for the present cycle of humanity, the consciousness soul is that which most brings man into connection with the outer physical world. Hence that national entity, which is inspired by the consciousness soul, is above all entrusted with the mission of furthering and promoting materialistic culture. It is therefore again not a question of expressing a value judgment, but of simply characterizing the fact that the British nation is called upon to inspire the consciousness soul. Insofar as the individual belongs to his people, thus insofar as he is inspired by the Luciferic folk spirit, he identifies with the purely materialistic culture of the present. We indeed find this in British culture. To the extent that the individual belongs to the British nation, the materialistic spirit of the British nation becomes apparent. This distinctive spirit that between the years of 1856 and 1900 has conducted 34 wars of conquest and has made 57 millions of earthly human beings new British subjects and which in our time pretends to represent the freedom of individual human groups. When we are considering a time such as ours, we must be absolutely clear that it is one that will teach people to feel what one now represents as the conflict between the various national groups of Europe or of a large part of the earth as an awakening call. Those belonging to 34 nationalities are involved together in a war, wholly irrespective of minor racial differences. One should see this as an awakening call that has very little to do with what people have hitherto called history. 
This latter way of looking at things is especially, in our time, being taken to nonsensical levels. It really is so absurd what the various European nations are putting forward today, that people weigh up the various outward facts in order to discover the causes of this terrible war. But precisely this war will teach people that one will find nothing in its outward causes other than, at best, external symptoms of what lies deeply and inwardly hidden in groups of people as a result of the guidance of advanced and retarded spiritual beings. And in a certain sense what our present time manifests by way of trials will compel people to extend their scrutiny to the spiritual depths where lie the causes of what is outwardly happening in the world. One can show in all sorts of ways how that which manifests itself outwardly is working in the deep foundations of consciousness. Although most of our friends are already familiar with this example, I should like again to indicate how the whole map of Europe at the end of the Middle Ages was determined by the intervention of the Maid of Orleans in the war between England and France. Anyone who views our outward history with understanding has to acknowledge that the map of Europe would have had a very different form if, as a result of the intervention of the Maid of Orleans in the war, England had not been defeated by France at that time. But the Maid of Orleans was no highly skilled strategist. She was not someone who was at the pinnacle of current training and development. She was a simple human child, a country girl. But through her, spirits of the higher hierarchies were working in the way they had to work at this time. And it has been thoroughly necessary that these spirits have been working in subconscious regions right up to our time, because people have not as yet been able to understand what must now be understood through spiritual science. We have often found it beautifully expressed in legends how higher spiritual beings intervene in the realm of the subconscious, and it is with justice and not a matter of superstition because it corresponds to the actual facts, that the time from Christmas until 6 January, when for the outer world the year is most withdrawn, was regarded with particular significance. If one seeks spiritual knowledge, not in the way that we seek it today on the path described entitled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved?, but wishes to reach it in a more elemental way, one could be inspired in these thirteen nights. This is, for example, very beautifully expressed in the Norwegian legend of Olaf Astason. In this legend we are shown how Olaf Astason goes to church before the beginning of the Christmas festival, how, before the church, he enters into a state of sleep and is asleep throughout the thirteen nights, how he wakes up on three kings' day, and is able to relate what he has experienced, and what he then pictorially relates in a visionary but primitive way corresponds to what we call the passage through the soul world and the passage through the spirit land. All this Olaf Astason has experienced in the time within which the Christmas festival is rightly placed. This should indicate to us that the clairvoyance of a child of nature could be developed in these thirteen nights between Christmas and the festival of the three kings. 
since the maid of Orleans was such a child of nature, one might presuppose that in these thirteen nights she had experienced the world through a kind of dream condition, of which she said, when she led the French army against the English, that she had been inspired in these thirteen nights. Moreover, this happened in a quite distinctive way. Every human individual passes through a state of sleep, a condition where the senses do not yet speak. This is in the mother's body before he perceives the physical light of the earth. This is indeed a kind of sleeping state, and the maturest part of this state is, of course, in the last thirteen days before birth. What is so extraordinary, and what fills our soul with astonishment, is that the maid of Orleans was born on 6 January. She therefore underwent an inspirational journey during the thirteen nights before her eyes had opened to the earthly light. That 6 January is the birthday of the maid of Orleans is therefore also intentionally specified in our calendar. This is something that we need to understand in its world historical context. For it can tell us how mysterious the connections in the world are and how mysterious powers are working in the world. Thus mysterious powers were at work then, on 6 January, when the people in the little village where the Maid of Orleans was born came flocking together in the morning, when the animals behaved in so wonderful a way. On this 6th of January, an inspiration could be concluded during the thirteen nights a being could be inspired who was karmically predisposed for this. Of course, not everyone who is born on 6 January has such a predisposition, but karma must harmonize with the other circumstances. I wanted to mention this example of the Maid of Orleans as one that well shows us how subconscious powers contribute to historical development and evolution. To be sure, there then came the materialistic developments of the ensuing centuries. They inevitably understood such a reference to the deep foundations of history as sheer lunacy. This doesn't matter, just as it matters not at all if people outside the movement still regard this spiritual science as a lot of nonsense. Spiritual science will find its way through this. But such significant events as those within which people are living at present and into which they have been incarnated in order to participate in them in one or another form do not always have the same significance in historical evolution. Today these destiny-laden events signify an awakening call to human beings. Already such a wealth of literature has been written about this war but in everything that has appeared in books, brochures, and so on, we do not find what people presume will be found, and which must gradually be found. One often hears, it is not really possible to speak of the causes, perhaps after the war, perhaps only after several decades will people discover from documents the true causes of the war and know who was really to blame. You can read this on every other page of the newspapers. But this is not the point. What matters is that because of this time in which we are living, the real causes are not to be seen in these outward reasons, but that one finds the cause in the spiritual world. One will find that this war has been instituted as the particular karma of materialism, 
which must be undergone in order that people assemble sufficient convictions to reach across from materialism to spiritualism. This is the trial that humanity has to undergo. What then is actually happening around us today in so shocking a way? We know that when someone passes through the gate of death, he first leaves his physical body behind in the physical world. He initially enters the spiritual world with his etheric body, astral body, and ego. He soon casts off the etheric body, and this is incorporated in the rest of the world. He then passes on through the soul land and through the spirit land. But now consider that today a large number of people are passing through the gate of death in a relatively short period, that they cast off an etheric body that would normally have been able to support a human life for several decades. When someone between the ages of 20 and 30 dies, he casts off his etheric body, which has the capacity to sustain his physical body for 60 or 70 years. The forces reside in the etheric body. For in the spiritual world, nothing is lost. All those who are passing through the portal of death in the flower of their youth today surrender to the world an etheric body that would have been able to sustain this life for a long time to come. These forces are now in the spiritual world. What are these forces? I should like, by means of a striking example derived from our own circle, to demonstrate to you the significance of such a phenomenon. It was last autumn when a family belonging to our anthroposophical circle lost their seven-year-old son, who was a very likable boy. The outer circumstances were indeed of the most tragic nature. As a German citizen, the father had had to enlist in the war. He had just been taken ill and was in a military hospital. One evening, when there had been a lecture in Dornach, where our building is being erected, it was pointed out to us that the little seven-year-old boy was missing. He had not returned home in the evening. I should not forget to mention that the family had settled in Dornach as a gardener's family. I had myself shortly beforehand traveled to Switzerland from Germany. The boy had come to meet me in front of the building and held out his hand to me, a sunny and very likable child. So that evening we received the news that the boy was missing. The only possible thought was that a furniture van that had brought some furniture for members had overturned in the vicinity of the building and had fallen on the child. Now, you must bear in mind that for as many years as one can remember, no furniture van had come that way and since then also not. You must, moreover, consider that the boy lived with his mother who cared for the gardens. He was such a good boy that when his father had to go away, he said to his mother that he would be really diligent in his help because his father was no longer there. He had, that evening, been sent to the so-called canteen to fetch something for his mother. It was not far, only a short distance lies between the canteen and his mother's house. There is a fork in the track on this short stretch, so that the furniture van had to negotiate a bend. The boy had actually wanted to leave ten minutes earlier, but had been detained by someone who wanted to talk with him. Had he left earlier and by a door other than the one he left by, he would have passed the van sooner and on the left side, whereas he was now walking on the right. Because he left later by a different door and was on the right of the furniture van, 
When the van overturned, it fell on the boy. People saw the mishap, only those who were with the horses, but no one suspected that the boy was trapped beneath the van. They then said, The van is too heavy for us to lift this evening. We'll do it in the morning. All this happened between five and six o'clock. And now we were in the position of having to get the van upright at a quarter past ten. By midnight this was done, and we lifted out the dead boy. Now the first thing I should like to say is this, that such an example well illustrates how people think erroneously also about life. I should additionally like to cite another frequently used comparison for this erroneous thinking. Suppose that you see in the distance someone walking beside a river. You suddenly see that he has fallen into the river. You run to have a look. You find that there is a stone where he fell. You then, of course, say that he stumbled over the stone, fell into the water, and thereby met his death. A quite different and indeed opposite explanation is also possible. The person may have had a heart attack. He fell into the water because he was already dead. He did not meet his death by falling into the water. This mistake is made constantly, especially in natural science. One does, of course, not notice it when it is so subtly concealed. It was a similar situation with this boy. The child's karma had run its course. The spiritual beings ruling over this mystery had arranged everything so that the child could meet his death. The boy was seven years old. A really youthful, etheric body that would have been able to sustain life for many decades, the forces were available. Now I shall always acknowledge what it means that for some time our Dornach building has been embedded within the enlarged etheric body of the little boy Theodor Weiss. The etheric body is indeed enlarged. It becomes bigger after death, and the etheric body of this little seven-year-old Theo has ever since formed a kind of aura for the building. And if one has anything to do with the building, if one has the need to find the ideas for the building that incorporate it rightly in the spiritual world, since the death of this boy, one knows that one is inspired by the etheric body that forms, together with the aura of the building, the etheric body of little Theo Weiss. No longing that I might have to appear original would lead me to deny that many of the contributions for the building have arisen and have been inspired by the circumstance that the aura of this etheric body is around the building, and that one has with regard to the building this help that this unspent etheric body is working in favor of the building. Think what significant inner facts stand behind the outer facts. A family moves its dwelling place to the vicinity of the building. A boy is especially predisposed through his soul being. He sacrifices his etheric body in order that the building is enshrouded in the power of this etheric body. Here we have an example through which we can see how unspent etheric bodies that have been sacrificed have their task in the world. Only then does that which should flow by way of feeling content from our spiritual science really have its beginning. That one knows that man consists of a physical body, etheric body, astral body, and ego, and that he passes through various earthly lives is really not what it's all about. What matters is that something becomes part of our actual experience through these views. We also endeavor thereby 
to bring life into our movement, so that not only theoretically, through teaching, but through life itself, we try to overcome the difference between the living and the dead. When a very dear colleague of ours, Fritz Mitcher, was recently taken away from us in his thirtieth year, and I had to give the address at the cremation in Basel, there were some important words that I addressed to this soul with the object of requesting that it might continue working further among us also after death. For we not only need the so-called living, but we need the collaboration of those who have passed through the portal of death, and they will collaborate with us in a twofold way. On the one hand, a large number of etheric bodies, that those who have crossed the threshold of death in grave experiences of destiny have cast off, will serve as collaborators in the near future. Youthful, unspent, etheric bodies are now like a great mighty aura in which we are now living. And then, on the other hand, there are the individualities themselves who are working further from out of their etheric bodies. We can look upon these unspent etheric bodies in, for example, the case of little Theophice, where his etheric body becomes an inspiration for much that is achieved through the building. I wish to focus on the individuality in my address to Fritz Mitcher. It is an essential part of our spiritual science in this way wholly to sense and feel how the gulf separating life and death is bridged. For it must become the conscious preoccupation of our earthly lives, not only theoretically to know, but wholly livingly to embrace the awareness that the dead are for us as living beings, that the dead give something in the form of youthful, unspent etheric bodies. And in these etheric bodies that belonged to people who have now found death through the great destiny-laden events, there live the echoes of all that is experienced, where the imminent prospect of death is, more or less consciously, seen as a sacrifice for the events demanded by the time. This enters into these etheric bodies. To seek death, or to be more precise, to foresee death, and nevertheless know that this death has a significance, will be the case with numerous people who are passing through the gate of death in the present time. One can be a materialist. If one lives one's life in such a way, one may say, Folk souls and folk spirits are merely names for something that abstractly links a group of human beings together with the same language and the same distinctive qualities. To speak of folk spirits as real beings is sheer craziness. Many of those now passing through the portal of death may themselves echo these words, but by passing in this way through death, they unconsciously give their assent to what spiritual science must say, namely, that a folk spirit or folk soul is a real being. For what would it mean if folk spirits and folk souls were not real beings and yet from all sides human beings are engaged in a bloody war? On the basis of a materialistic world structure, this would be inconceivable. But if the individual sacrifices himself for the folk spirit, if to him the folk spirit is a real being, it is profoundly meaningful that such events befall human beings. Thus we shall come to be aware of a time when many, many unspent etheric bodies are hovering in the spiritual atmosphere, all urging that there is a spiritual world. These etheric bodies will in future be good helpers 
for the spiritual deepening of people's conception of the world. Human beings will simply have to experience in their souls how the dead call. When peace again comes to reign over the fields, over which terrible events are now being enacted, those who will then be living will be able to live to better effect when they hear the voice of the dead. But this is not meant merely symbolically. The unspent etheric bodies will be there and ring out their call. The world will not be able to exist in future unless people sense and feel their connection with the spiritual world. And the humanity of the future would therefore prove to be dull and impassive if they were to be unable to hear the urging of the dead. In physics, everyone accepts that no force is lost. One speaks of the transformation of forces. It is similar in the spiritual realm. The forces that the unspent etheric body carries through the gate of death do not disappear. They will continue to be there. And they can be received into the souls of the future. These souls can, through this connection with the soul residues that are left behind from unspent etheric bodies, receive strength and confidence for spiritual work. In addition to much that this war can say to us, something that is of particular importance to us as advocates of spiritual science is that we, as it were, look up into the atmosphere which will come to be an atmosphere of unspent etheric bodies. While here on the earth there must be souls who have a feeling for the fact that these are the awakening calls of the dead. It is our task as proper advocates of spiritual science to bring this about. We must be able to find a point of view that accords with the Spirit also as regards these events of our time, not the point of view that abstract thinking asserts. But we must envisage the future population of the earth in such a way that down below there are souls who are in the physical body, while from above the unspent forces of etheric bodies send down their influences, and that these souls down below are able to say, We do not doubt that better times for spiritual awareness will come, for unspent etheric bodies are helping us with their forces. If we see this in a real way and not abstractly, we will have understood something of the exhortations that this destiny-laden time can give us, especially as people who identify themselves with spiritual science. It is of such importance that this happens, for there is a need for real influences flowing into human evolution. We would have to continue working for a long time if we had to call forth through intellectual convictions what the spiritual world conception wants to impart. In the case of the Maid of Orleans, an unconscious initiation took place. In future, the spiritual world will engage with human evolution in a different way, it will be the unspent etheric bodies that will be at our side, helping us, and also those who, as individualities, want to bring their influences to bear upon the physical plane. With regard to what people are able to understand, some very strange things sometimes happen also today. You will already agree that at the time of the Maid of Orleans, the strategists, the army commanders, did not bring about what actually happened. There is another example that I have often cited. 
when, in the decisive moment, Constantine's army was marching toward Rome, it was also not the army commanders who brought about the victory and overcame Maxentius's army, which was five times bigger, as he led it before the gates of Rome to meet Constantine. Constantine did not follow the advice of his commanders, but a dream that told him to let Christ's monogram go before his army. Dreams and Sibylline oracles had led the armies together then at a certain point and decided everything. However, because Constantine was victorious, the map of Europe again acquired the appearance that reflected this. Who was it who was guiding events beneath the threshold of consciousness? It was the Christ impulse. But the impulse of Christ as he really was, and not as people understood him to be. We do not come to know the Christ impulse when we listen to the disputes of the theologians. The Christ impulse has been working not in what people have consciously formulated, in what people have understood, but he was working in linking together the events involving Constantine and Maxentius and later again with the Maid of Orleans. Likewise, in our modern age, there is much to be experienced, albeit sometimes in matters of minor concern. But sometimes small things can be compared with greater ones. Thus, a few years ago, a famous philosopher wrote a lengthy article about the worldview of the spiritual science with which I have been associated in a South German monthly journal. This article had quite an influence. It was written in a very adversarial way, while containing a largely favorable judgment about theosophy in general, and also much that one could appreciate. I was, for example, given the advice that instead of focusing on such things, I should rather use my gifts in order conclusively to make it known whether Mikowitz was the reincarnation of the Maid of Orleans and so on. But overall, the article was very good at presenting what our spiritual scientific world conception is considered to be in such a way as to evoke an uneven impression. The philosopher who had written the article was regarded as a great Platonist, a great logician. He himself has said that the only task to which he dedicates himself is the proclamation of truth, so he should know the truth. The editor of the journal seemed very satisfied to be able to publish such a long authoritative article about this spiritual science, that was several years ago. Then came the war. The person concerned is not of a mind to sympathize with Central Europe, but he sympathizes very strongly with England and France. Now what happens? He writes a number of letters to the same man, the editor of the journal. The editor of the journal publishes these letters as well, but because they are too characteristic, in a different journal, the Süddeutsche Monatsch Heft. He even points out that he is the same man, Karl Muth, who edits the journal Hochland and who printed the article about what he refers to as quote, Steinerite Theosophy. Close quote. As for the letters, what one can say about them is that all the venom that can be expressed about Central Europeans by someone with West European sympathies can be found there. Among other things, this man explains that in comparison to these people who are all incapable of knowing what they are fighting for, black people are free members of the nobility. In comparison to Central Europe, one merely needs to consider the English world empire 
which, like the Catholic Church, has been instituted by God and has never done anything other than what lies in the divine ordering of the world. Printing such a letter is something that speaks for itself. The editor in question writes of this. In the whole of Central Europe, the only place where someone could be found who could write such things is a madhouse. Thus, now, the good Hermut admits that the man whom he chose to let loose on our spiritual scientific world conception belongs in a madhouse. Yes, this is how it stands with what had been adduced about our spiritual scientific world conception. Now, Hermut should have known at the time that the man was fit for the madhouse, but he first needed the awakening call of the war. His insight had first to be stirred by what he could now easily see. There are many who wander about criticizing the world conception that we represent who should be in the madhouse, but this does not become apparent in so grotesque a way as in the instance referred to. I was saying that this example shows that the intellect that people have today would still have a long way to go when it comes to the world conception of spiritual science and that it has to be said, not only the living are necessary in order that quantum spirituality, which must come into the world, may appear, but also the dead. And those who are the best source of help are those who with heart and soul had put themselves behind the course of the fateful and destiny-laden events that we are experiencing in the present. And so one would wish today that such considerations do not remain within souls as something purely theoretical, but become a deeply honest feeling, the feeling that we may develop our belief in and commitment to spiritual science in such a way that our souls develop and foster the attentive awareness that there will be urging voices in the spiritual world saying to us, let those of us who have died be a sign that a spiritual deepening must come to human beings, for we passed through this death with consciousness, not for our own souls, but for what is independent of us, so that we have thereby sealed the belief in something that reaches beyond the individual material human life. If among those who feel a commitment to spiritual science there will be those who sense, feel, and know the grave whispering of those who have thus crossed the threshold of death, something will indeed be achieved of what needs to be accomplished through spiritual science within the sensibilities of human souls. In other words, if through spiritual science there will be souls who know how to guide their conscious minds into the spirit realm, it will be possible for much to be said to human individuals from the realm of spirit in the times to come. This is what I wanted to indicate to you, for you to ponder upon, since the arrangements are such that during this time we shall also be able to gather in a branch meeting. One would wish that at such gatherings knowledge will not merely be grasped in a seed-like form, but that what is said during such gatherings may work as a living seed that is immersed in the ground of the feeling soul. The main thing will be what you will carry forward with you in your feelings as the result of such studies. We shall therefore conclude these studies by calling to mind what is to emerge for us from the destiny-laden events of the time, quote, from the courage of the fighters, 
from the blood on fields of battle, from the grief of the bereaved, from the people's sacrifice. There will ripen fruit of spirit if souls will turn in consciousness toward the realm of spirit. Close quote. The end of lecture nine.